This episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast, is brought to you in partnership with Thermo Fisher Scientific and Applied Biosystems' new Qualtrack real-time PCR and digital PCR solutions for biopharma. Give your cell and gene therapy development an edge with reliable and accurate qPCR and dPCR workflows backed by a trusted supplier. Explore the complete ecosystem of CGMP-compliant qPCR and dPCR assays, master mixes, and instruments at thermofisher.com slash qPCR slash biopharma. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and my guest for this episode is Andy Stober. He is the Chief Manufacturing Officer at Encoded Therapeutics, an end-to-end gene therapy developer. Andy, welcome. Thanks for your time today. Aaron, thanks for having me. Good, good. All right, so talk to us about Encoded. Tell us everything we need to know about what you're working on. Yeah, so Encoded is a private, small gene therapy company, um, really, and the way I answer that with most people is really based around uh, two things. First is is the science that we have. Um, so, uh, you know, we're a gene therapy developer, um, really looking at leveraging kind of the, the next generation of gene therapy science, specifically around um, cell selective targeting and uh, regulation. So, uh, really looking at kind of the, the next set of, of uh, disease classification in gene therapy. Um, and, and so science is really our, our core. Um, what we've done over the last couple of years is begin to build out um, what I refer to as the next phase of, of ENCODED, which is, is delivering that science all the way across uh, the regulatory pathways through the clinical studies into commercial. Uh, and so what we've done is uh, around that, that core science, um, we've really built out uh, a leadership team and now, uh, you know, some seed functions around things like commercial uh, manufacturing, which, which is my area, um, clean ops uh, and regulatory quality so that we can really, uh, you know, bring the, the core science all the way across, across the goal line. Good, good. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the ethical responsibilities in gene therapy. From your perspective, what do developers need to consider when it comes to ethics and gene therapy in general? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and uh, you know, my background being in manufacturing, I uh, I've gotten to to be a fly on the wall as a lot of the, these considerations are talked about. So I won't pretend to be the, the expert in clinical design, but I think uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, the clinical design and how we engage um, not only the patient population, but the, the, the families of the patient population, the key opinion leaders, the doctors, uh, you know, everyone who's wrestling with these uh these pediatric CNS diseases that we're we're targeting, and so um, the the clinical design I think is probably the biggest piece. Uh, you know what I've, in layman's terms, what I've learned through uh, my last couple roles is really that uh, you know in the in the old school methodology around around clinical design and drug delivery, 
you were able to start with kind of a lower dose. And then, you know, if you're, if it's, a, if it's safe, you can kind of tighter that upwards. Um, you know, we're, we're in a one-time therapy business, right? So using the AAV delivery, you get one shot at it. And so you re it really puts a lot more pressure on, you know, targeting the right dose at the right age and understanding the disease and then the outcomes of the disease in the clinical design. Um, so, you know, I think that is, is probably one of the biggest pieces on the, on the, you know, the ethics side of, of the conversation. And then, you know, from a manufacturing technical standpoint, um, just, you know, having as much information as we can, as early as we can, um, you know, a lot of these, these uh, pediatric CNS disorders are rare, unmet medical need. So we have to move the programs as quickly as we can, right? There's nothing for these, these kids um, or things that just address symptoms. And so, you know, there's a huge sense of urgency, but at the same time, you need to make sure that the work is obviously safe and robust and that the understanding is there. So that, that's the other piece of the, um, I think the operational ethics part of it is, you know, how much, how much do we do when, right? When do we, uh, you know, it's not the typical 10 or 12 year drug development timeline where you can iterate things like the manufacturing process and the analytics we really need to go earlier across the board. Um, so I think those are all the considerations that I, I would mention. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. And there's, those are, make a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we've heard on cell and gene, both from a guest column perspective and just people we've actually had on the podcast. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, I definitely want to get into the manufacturing discussion. As you said, you're the chief manufacturing yeah. officer. So, uh, a lot of important questions around manufacturing. Um, talk to us about the, what are the unique commercial manufacturing issues in gene therapy and how are you addressing them? So I guess let's start by explaining what those issues are and then how to address them. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a couple different pieces of this. Um, the first piece is around uh, the the now, right? The the products that we're able to kind of uh, go after now, the patient population. So when you take things like uh, what we're working on, uh, which is for Dravet syndrome, um, or you look back at what Avexis did around uh, SMA with Zolgensma. I'm sorry, am I losing my microphone? Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Um, the, you know, these small patient populations, there's how do we manufacture for those first? Um, I think the second piece, which I'll take next, is around what do we do with the larger patient populations that are currently somewhat out of our reach, right? So if we look at things like hemophilia and other, you know, large indications um, those are those are a struggle right now to even consider from a manufacturing supply. But taking that that first bucket of the now, um, I think you know there's really I, I've spent the last few years first at Avexis and now at Encoded, really trying to build out uh, commercial 
supply chains that are robust uh, for these these type of indications. And uh, you know, there's there's the first piece on the supply chain side. Even before COVID, um, we were wrestling as an industry with the robustness of the supply chains. Uh, and by that, I mean a lot of the suppliers were still, and this is maybe four or five years ago, still in a clinical kind of mindset. So they were used to people ordering, say, 10 of something. And in a commercial world, it's hundreds or thousands, right? So they, and they really hadn't gotten, um, they hadn't gotten those orders, they hadn't scaled yet. Um, and whether that's the plastics uh, that go into kind of the disposables or the chromatography columns or the resins or the media, um, you know, it was across the board. We saw that there was variation of readiness of some of the supply chains underneath the manufacturing that, that um, you know, weren't, weren't, all, weren't all ready to go to commercial yet. Um, and we spent a lot of time doing that uh, with my time at Avexis. Um, and, you know, and it's come a long way in the last few years. COVID was a huge setback for all of us, um, I think all supply chains. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's still probably number one. The, the other piece of the now, uh, and it kind of plays into the future state, is the manufacturing processes are still relatively um, inefficient from an output perspective. Um, you know, as you can imagine, our first, first uh, focus is the quality, as it should be. Um, but that means from an output perspective, that takes a little more time. Uh, and so, and when, when you look at what we're doing, there's really two challenges. One is uh, we're delivering these, most of these products are a huge amount of vector genome, right? So the amount of actual virus that we're delivering, are, you know, are on the, on, you know, you're talking quadrillion vector, viral vector in a dose, right? Which before I got into this part of the industry, I didn't know was a number, um, but it is a real number. And, and we're doing it at very small volumes. So, you know, those two things work against you in the manufacturing and supply uh, aspects. Uh, and so we're trying to increase the output of, of the manufacturing process, but that takes some time. Um, the good news is if you look at uh, like some, some uh, similar parts of the pharmaceutical industry. So if you go back and either look at when we did this around fermentation products way, way back, right? So when we, you know, penicillin and others, uh, and then again, during the monoclonal era, it took, they both started out like this, right? Where the, the manufacturing processes were very um, low producing, um, you know, and it was tough to supply. And they both, you know, were able to scale and ramp over about a 30 year period. Uh, and, if, and if you look at those timelines, they're almost identical. And the other good news is the way that we ramp those as an industry is almost identical, right? Things like uh, media formulation work, cell line work, improved purification methods, et cetera. So we have the roadmap to be able to, to improve these processes. I think the industry challenge is, I don't think we have 30 years to do it. Um, you know, these diseases are too, you know, the, the, the severity is too high. So from a manufacturing perspective, you know, what I've said is 
we should be able to do this in 10 years, not 30 years. We have the roadmap and we need to be able to do it. And in ENCODED, again, we're leveraging our development group, the science, you know, that that's kind of our focus is how do we improve the process over time uh, to be able to, to go after, um, you know, larger patient populations. And, uh, you know, and from an industry perspective, we're looking at um, promoter cell lines, you know, the whole idea of, you know, single instead of triple plasmid transfection, scaling of bioreactors. Again, a lot of the same methodology that we've used in the past um, to get ourselves to these larger patient populations. So I think, you know, those are the probably the two biggest considerations right now, the supply chain and the process pieces. Um, I think, you know, again, I, I think everyone's kind of working on it uh, in different ways. I, I like that, you know, there's a lot of collaboration across the industry where, where possible, um, you know, and I, I, think, I think we're going to solve this quicker than we have in the other cases. Yeah, good. Excuse me. That's my next question for you. Uh, you know, in an effort to truncate that timeline from 30 years to 10 years, you know, what, when it comes to educating these next generation of this next generation of gene therapy scientists, what are some of the lessons you've learned that might help accelerate the, the, f- the future of the manufacturing process and the, and the success of it to, yeah. to, to, to narrow that window? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I, you know, what I've seen um, in the, again, in the last couple of years. So, so coming out my background, I came out of, you know, 20 plus years of manufacturing across typical um, pharma manufacturing. So uh, first um, small molecules and then vaccine products and eventually into the um, monoclonal antibodies. And so what I've seen is um, first is a lot of those things are very transferable to what we're doing now, as I just kind of indicated. there are so that foundational work, um, whether that's from an analytical perspective or a process or a manufacturing perspective, the the backbone of what we've done in those uh, parts of the industry are you know very transferable. I say it's seventy to eighty percent. It looks and feels the same, um, you know, and and so leveraging the, the folks out of that part of the industry and bringing them in to bring all that knowledge um, is probably number one. The second is, um, you know, we need to be able to have those folks kind of educated on the 20 or 30% that's different. And there we need, uh, you know, we need folks that are wired to keep an open mind, right? Problem solving, right? Cause it's, we don't have the answers. We're, we're, you know, we're trying new things and, you know, you try and have setbacks and you try something else, right? So that core curiosity, that core scientist, um, along with that, that experience and that blend is really what, what we're, what we're trying to look for. Um, and then I think training people coming out of, out of, uh, you know, out of the colleges, we do a lot of recruiting out of, uh, various universities. Um, and so we tend to center ourselves around the talent. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's why you're seeing a lot of the, the big pharma biotech areas are, are 
you know, are seeing that gene, gene and cell therapy boom. Um, you know, I'm based out of the Raleigh area. We've certainly seen it uh, enormously, a lot of people coming into the Raleigh area. Um, and it's, it's because we can, there's a big commitment from the university systems and others to, to teach folks um, and really kind of give us uh, people who are, 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 you know, really functional right off the bat, have worked um, with this kind of equipment, whether it's analytical or process or otherwise, um, really know what they're doing almost from day one, right out of, you know, whether it's school or community college. So I think, I think those are, you know, we're, we're big on recruiting out of the pharma industry and trying to, you know, repurpose people into this, but also um, teach people coming out of school. I think we do both. Yeah, that's great. And that's a really uh, important topic. I mean, that's a, that's a discussion in and of itself of sourcing and retaining top talent in the cell and gene therapy sector, for sure. So uh, it sounds like the processes you're, you're employing at Encoded are, you know, helping you garner that top talent you need to, you know, bring your therapies to commercialization, hopefully down the road. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we've taken uh, the approach of, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we're, we're based around the core science and now we're building out some of these other functions. We've really tried to tried to meter the growth to be balanced so that we, you know, across, you know, quality, regulatory, um, clean ops, manufacturing, so that we, we kind of all grow at the same pace. And we've brought in some, some great kind of seed folks, seed leadership to build around um, to help train uh, folks from the other parts of the industry, uh, as well as, you know, work with the universities to hire and bring in new folks. Um, and, you know, we're, we're waiting for that right time for that kind of explosive growth that we'll see at the next phase. Um, but I think, you know, you weather that next phase of, of uh, kind of a you know, large growth um, to, to be able to support a commercial organization, you weather that much better if you have a good core group uh, at the start. And, and that's what we've been focused on. Good, good. Okay. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the patient communities and how you work with them. So I'd like to talk to any of the gene therapy uh subject matter experts when we have them on um, about why cultivating strong relationships specifically with the patient communities for the who, who have rare diseases. Right. So talk to us about what you're doing, what you're seeing, and why is it so imperative in creating that desired therapeutic outcome for rare diseases and the patient communities who have them? Yeah, I think uh, so. First, what what we're doing at Encoded specifically, um, and I credit our our chief medical officer Sal Rico uh, and his team. Again, he's brought in uh, a small but extremely knowledgeable team around this. Um, and so, you know, it's you need to understand not just um, what the patient's going through with these diseases, but also the needs of the families, right? Mm -hmm. these, these, these rare diseases have huge impact on the, on the families and extended caregivers, as well as you need to understand the perspective of the physicians, um, you know, and uh, the folks that will actually be delivering these medi medicines. And there's, there's all kinds of complexity that goes along with that. Um, 
So, you know, I think it's an imperative for, for these kind. And as I mentioned up front, that one time, you know, if you have one shot at, at dosing somebody, um, it's got to be right. And so, uh, you know, we need, we need to go into a lot of depth and understanding there. But I, and so what I like that we've done at Encoded is um, a number of things we're doing uh, before the, the initial uh, clinical trial, before we get into humans, we're doing the natural, the envisioned natural history study to really understand the disease. Um, and that helps in a number of ways inform us on how to kind of design the product, the dosing, you know, timeline of when we would dose, how you would define your clinical endpoints. Um, and I think that's all, um, you know, hugely important back to your question about the ethical side of this uh, and the fact that, you, you know, you really have that single dose uh, to be able to, to, to get this right. Um, so, and, and then engaging with uh, obviously the physicians and others to make sure that, um, you know, that, that it's, we're getting the, the accurate dosing the first time uh, and understanding it all the way from, you know, not just manufacturing the product, but all the way to end delivery. Um, and, and so I think, I, you know, I think that's a, that's a huge part of all of these diseases. Um, if you take, you know, Dravet, for example, um, and again, Sal Rico would be our expert, but I, from my understanding, it's, you know, the, the, the big telltale sign with Dravet is, is, you know, being a severe form of epilepsy, it's, you know, people tend to talk about the seizures, the seizures, but at least from what I've heard, you know, the, when you talk to the families, the bigger piece of it is actually um, the development milestones, right? And mm -hmm. so that, those are, you know, obviously seizures are important, but, but if that's true, then when you dose becomes more important. And that's just an example. Um, I think it's true with all of these diseases. So I think doing that upfront work of um, engaging the, the, you know, the caregivers and the, and the parents and, and the families, as well as um, the natural history study, I think is, you know, foundational for, for all of these. For sure. And you, I agree, there's an entire universe of people surrounding the patient uh, from family and caregivers to practitioners and uh, you know, making sure everyone is on the same page and everyone is heard and seen uh, for what their role is, is very, very important. And it sounds like ENCODED is doing exactly what needs to be done to help uh, its, its patients with Dravet. So at the end of each episode, uh, I like to ask my guests, you know, a question to learn about who they are outside of the lab or the office. And so uh, this this question is a little bit different because um, of our educational backgrounds. And so in researching you before our podcast, I recognized that you graduated from Lehigh University. I graduated from Lafayette College. And uh, fun fact for our listeners that if you don't already know, the uh, Lafayette-Lehigh football game or football rivalry, excuse me, is the most consecutively played college football game in history. And so my question for you, Andy, is do you catch the game every year? Uh, do you, do you care? Do you, did you, did you attend the 150th meeting a few years ago at Yankee stadium? Um, if you're, if you know anything about college football, but specifically the Patriot league and this particular rivalry, it's a lot of fun. Um, and they take it really seriously. So I was just wondering your, I was just wondering what your thoughts are. 
Yeah. So I always, um, I, I, I always loved that. Um, that was my favorite week, um, <laughs> at school when I was at Lehigh, um, you know, just a lot of energy and a lot of fun. And I, I liked the rivalry. We always had a lot of friends, uh, at Lafayette and, and uh, so it was, even though it was a pretty good rivalry, it was pretty friendly all the way around from what I remember. I agree. Um, very good spirited. Hopefully it still is. I, I did get to attend um, the game in Yankee Stadium. Um, I know you brought that up because I think you guys won 27-7. So I, I know that's why you brought it up. I know it has nothing to do with Yankee Stadium with the 150th game. Um that that game was over by halftime, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I, I mean, I'm old enough that I was in school for the 125th game. <laughs> so I remember that was a big milestone at the time. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it's a great rivalry. And I, I, uh, I, I you know, it's funny, my, my wife went to Penn State. So um, Lehigh football doesn't get a lot of airtime in our house. Um, <laughs> my, my kids are all Penn State fans. They're surprised every time I want to watch, the, try to find uh, the Lehigh Lafayette game on, on uh, TV every year. They joke that they're like, we didn't know Lehigh played football. So they, they like the TV. <laughs> but um, no, it's a great rivalry. And I, I think, you know, the, you know, the fact that those universities are close is just great. It makes that whole area um, really nice. So. It, agreed. Agreed. I, I, yes, I was at the 150th meeting at Yankee stadium. My husband, I met my husband in at Lafayette. So he and I both attended and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. We've never had, there's never been any, I, I there's never been any animosity. It's always been a, a lot of, you know, good hearted, uh, fun back and forth. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've, I have yet to have someone on the podcast who attended, uh, Lehigh and they're such big, they're in the same area, like you said, in Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. And so I just thought, oh, that's so interesting. We'll have to bring it up. So thanks for, thanks for all that information. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna bring it up. I, I was gonna say, you know, I saw that you went to Lafayette, but I had already agreed to come on. So I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> this, we don't have to air this it's out, fine but, it's but, fine <laughs> no I, I think that's that's great thank you yeah yeah they're they're excellent schools there's no question um all right listeners well that wraps up this episode of selling gene the podcast featuring encoded therapeutics andy stober andy thanks again this was a lot of fun thanks aaron Listeners, be sure to visit sellandgene.com to sign up for our free newsletter to receive our timely educational editorial that'll come straight to your inbox. We'll talk to you soon.